Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. Dr. Howard Schubner is board certified in pediatrics, adolescent medicine, and internal medicine. He was a full professor at Wayne State University for 18 years and now works at Providence Hospital in Southfield, Michigan. He's a fellow in the American College of Physicians, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and the Society for Adolescent Medicine. Dr. Schubner is known as a national expert in ADHD for adolescents and adults, as well as mindfulness meditation and stress reduction. He has authored over 60 publications in scientific journals and books and performed research in the fields of adolescent health, ADHD, and stress reduction. Dr. Schubner is on the editorial boards of the Journal of Adolescent Health and the Journal of Attention Disorders. He has given over 250 lectures to scientific audiences regionally, nationally, and internationally on topics related to adolescent medicine, ADHD, and stress reduction. He has been granted funds to conduct research studies over several million dollars in total. Dr. Schubner is the founder and director of the Mind-Body Medicine Program at Providence Hospital. This program uses the most current research methodologies to treat individuals who suffer from the Mind-Body Syndrome, or MBS, as described by Dr. John Sarno. Dr. Schubner has created a program that uses both meditative and cutting-edge psychological techniques to help individuals with chronic conditions such as fibromyalgia, whiplash, back and neck pain, myofascial pain, TMG syndrome, tension and migraine headaches, irritable bowel syndrome, irritable bladder syndrome, insomnia, anxiety, and other related conditions. Uh, Dr. Schubner, how are you doing today? I am great. Thanks for having me, Owen. I've really been looking forward to this conversation just to build on the really, really fascinating discussion that we had with Dr. Alan Abbas around uh, intensive short-term dynamic therapy. We had a really interesting discussion around conscious versus unconscious pathways for anxiety. I know you and others have been working on this mind-body syndrome concept for quite a while, going back to the work of Dr. John Sarno. I think we as clinical psychologists frequently note that when clients have resolution of their emotional issues, a lot of the aches and pains that they report experiencing tend to clear up in combination with that. I guess just to start, can you, can you provide an overview of mind-body syndrome? Yeah, I, uh, as you say, I was uh, interested in the work of Dr. Sarno uh, in around 2002-2003, and I really wasn't interested in pain per se, but uh, I've always been interested in the mind and mind-body type things going back to my college years, and I'm an internal medicine specialist, so I have a pretty strong, you know, medical background. And the more I read about it, the more I realized that the way the medical profession was treating pain uh, was really myopic. And it's my, I've come, you know, in the past 18 years to believe that chronic pain should be treated by psychologists, should not be treated by physicians. And that's a bold and revolutionary statement, but who should be treating anxiety? Why do psychologists treat anxiety? Because there's very few people who have anxiety that's, that are medical problems. Like hyperthyroidism would be an example of a medical problem that you would treat the hyperthyroidism and the anxiety will go away. But that's rare compared to the vast majority you know, millions of people who have anxiety disorder. So why are psychologists treating them? Because they're psychological problems. And chronic pain, for the most part, is a in this sense, is actually a psychological problem uh, because 
even though they may have back pain and the MRI may be abnormal, the MRIs are abnormal in normal people, even though they have headache and you can call it tension headache or occipital neuralgia or migraine headache. That doesn't matter because what's causing it? It's the brain, just like it's causing anxiety. So to me, those are interchangeable, uh, you know, in a sense, diagnoses. And the same with pelvic pain syndromes and most abdominal pain syndromes. So it's just a shocking statement. And so I think psychologists are too siloed into thinking that they shouldn't be treating, quote, medical problems. But I think we have to redefine these these types of medical problems as being mind-body problems or neural circuit or brain-induced problems. Yeah, I agree, and especially after the conversation with Dr. Abbas and others. I mean, we've known for a long time that most visits to the family doc, the vast majority, are actually for psychological issues, even though they may be presenting with a physical complaint uh, of some kind. And I've had a family doc on the podcast previously, and he spoke to his frustration of not really being able to offer any kind of, let's say, organic treatment for what he ultimately felt was a psychological or physical manifestation of a psychological uh, challenge. So this distinction between mind-body seems really artificial at the end of the day. One of the ways that I like that you frame up the mind-body syndrome is, of course, our emotions have an impact on our body, like blushing, for instance, right? You feel embarrassment. It's common to have one's face turn red and maybe perspire. Uh, so when we use these everyday examples, it's a lot more intuitive. But for some reason, we, you know, feels like we've gone astray with respect to conceptualizing the link between the mind and the body. Why do you think that's happened? Why do you think these silos have developed uh, between the mind and body? Well, I think there was much more of an understanding many years ago before medicine became so advanced and so biotechnologically advanced. And we thought we could... You know, we thought we could cure all infectious diseases with antibiotics and antivirals. And it turns out, as we're seeing now, we need to deal with with um, with infections in a social way. <laughs> uh, that's shocking. I mean, that's how tuberculosis became a non-issue was not because of technology, but because of public health. Um, and uh, so we we just began to think that we could cure things. Uh, with biotechnological solutions. And, and you know, with cancer, we've made incredible advances in biotechnological solutions to a lot of different kinds of cancers. Uh, but with chronic pain, uh, the biotechnological solutions, frankly, tend to make people worse. Because when you have back pain and you get an MRI and it shows you have bulging discs and degenerative discs, uh, those are normal. But they're interpreted for you as, you know, you're telling 40-year-olds that you have a back of an 80-year-old. And the fear and the, and the worry and the frustration and the focus and the options which are so invasive that cause more, uh, you know, more assault, basically. And people who have these things often have been assaulted in their life in some way, shape, or form. And now the medical profession, in essence, is assaulting them anew. Uh, it compounds this danger signal pathway in the brain, which is the cause of the pain in the first place, or the cause of the anxiety, or the insomnia, or the fatigue, or the depression, or the eating disorder, or the substance use disorder. I mean, it's it's really where I, I think we're on the verge of a, of a big paradigm shift in in how we see the brain and the 
it really comes back to this whole notion of uh, predictive coding, which you know I'd like to talk with you about. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit more from a mechanistic perspective how mind-body syndrome rolls itself out within the uh, within the body? Yeah, I'm really. It's been really a, a game changer for understanding this idea of predictive coding and the idea that our brain creates what we experience. Our brain creates what we see. So we don't see with our eyes, light comes in our eyes, but we see with our visual cortex. Our visual cortex creates the images that we see. And if you give someone glasses that have a prism in them, such that the whole world is turned upside down, and you wear those for a few days, your brain will turn the world right side up again. Because our brain creates what we see and our brain, uh, and our brain creates what we hear. You know, we hear because we have neural circuits for how to hear the English language. Uh, We don't have neural circuits for how to hear some foreign languages, so we can't hear them. And if you've ever listened to the, there's a funny, you know, online thing where the Yanni and Laurel thing, uh, where it turns out roughly half the people hear this sound hear Yanni, and the other half the people hear Laurel. And these are two completely different sounds. And why that is, it's it's not exactly known, but apparently it has to do with which frequencies your brain is more attuned to hearing or more just attunes at that moment to hearing and you hear something totally different. So your brain is creating what you hear. And the story I always tell people is a couple of, my wife has the same breakfast every morning, sliced apple, yogurt, granola. And a couple of years ago in the summer, she got up early, she had her breakfast and she had an extra slice. And it was dark. She came up to the bedroom and she said, here, honey. And she gave me a slice. I didn't see it. She just put it in my mouth. I took a bite. And I got immediate this kind of rotten, disgusting taste in my mouth as if she had poisoned me. And it turned out that day it wasn't an apple, which is what my brain was expecting. It was a peach. And that peach was sweet. And I love peaches. But my brain ignored the sweetness of the peach and it paid attention to the softness of the peach which in contradistinction to the expected crispness of the apple, my brain assumed that there was something bad. And it gave me a rotten taste. It created something that wasn't there. And so if our brain can create and does create what we feel, our brain can create pain in our stomach, our head, our back, our pelvis, wherever, when there's no tissue damage there. And it turns out, This is more common in chronic pain situations than is structural damage causing chronic pain. And this is shocking. Why do you think the body does this? I mean, this is one of the things I was wondering about during my conversation with Dr. Abbas is why in some people does the body choose to, or the brain, let's say, choose to shunt those sensations or those emotions into those particular areas? Do we know anything about that? In general, it does it, I believe, as a danger signal. It's a warning signal. It's a protective mechanism. So when you break an ankle, you get pain to protect you. Pain's not the problem. Pain is the solution. Your brain has devised in order to protect you from walking on a broken ankle. And so the brain uses pain as a protective mechanism. And the brain is wired so that emotional conflicts or emotional dangers activate the exact same neural circuits in the brain as does a physical injury. And this has been shown in fMRI studies of the brain. So we're wired that way. And so the, and 
And so the brain creates pain as a protector. And the, the message might be you have a broken ankle, but the message might be you have a broken heart or a broken relationship or a broken, you know, work situation. And that's just how the brain works. And, and now why the brain chooses pain versus choosing anxiety in one case or another, or choosing depression or choosing fatigue or choosing insomnia, that is a very, you know, we don't know, it's speculative. And it's based on maybe some genetic things that people have and maybe just learned what they learned in their life. If you grew up in a family where your parents, you know, your mom had headaches. Well, when your brain, when you get a, when your brain is endangered, it might choose headaches. You know, it might choose something that's symbolic. A pain in the ass might be someone who's a pain in the ass in your life. It might be an injury, a place where you had an injury in the past. And those neural circuits for that pain due to the injury are well known to your brain. And so when you get a later emotional injury in life, or an emotional assault or whatever, that it can choose, easily choose those pathways. Um, it can choose an area that is uh, that makes sense mechanically. So if you're typing a lot, uh, you're sitting at your desk, your brain may choose hand pain with typing to alert you or alarm you, even though there's nothing wrong with your hands, or it may choose neck pain or eye strain with the view that you'll think, well, it's because I'm sitting or I'm hunched over. And people write me all the time. It's you know, it's like, well, I've been sitting a lot. Well, sitting doesn't damage your back. <laughs> sitting is not a dangerous situation, position, you know. <laughs> but you know, we we gotta we have to find usually people are looking for a physical explanation. So, you know, and the doctors often and physical therapists are are, are happy to provide a, a physical explanation like that. Are there certain personality types that you've noticed in your practice tend to show up more in the waiting room, uh, more so than others? I, I have noticed in some of the literature, there's some mention of perfectionists or those who tend to be pleaser, quote unquote, types of personalities uh, may be more likely to be afflicted by these, this kind of mind body syndrome. Is that a, a fit with your clinical observations? It definitely fits with our clinical observations. It has, to my knowledge, this has not been studied uh, quantitatively. So it's really hard to say because there's a lot of people who are perfectionists. There's a lot of people who are people pleasers. <laughs> um, uh, but it certainly makes sense and it fits with, as you point out, my, my in your clinical observation that people who put pressure on themselves, so they're having the external pressure from what's going on in their life. They have maybe the, the, the uh, learned pressure from a sensitization of the danger alarm mechanism in their brain from adverse childhood events. And then on top of it, they have the pressure they're putting on themselves to be perfect, to, to make sure that everyone's, everyone else is happy, to put themselves last. And if they're not standing up for themselves, their brain might choose to stand up for them. Are there any specific types of emotions that tend to emerge once you end up doing the work with people? Like once you're able to reorient them to get past maybe the physical manifestation of that danger or the physical danger signal, uh, are there specific types of emotions that tend to emerge uh, with some regularity or predictability? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm pretty simple. You know, Alan Abbas is you know, one of my mentors and teachers and he taught me he tried to teach me well uh, <laughs> uh he did his best um 
But I, you know, it kind of boiled down to when I think of when I think of emotions. You know, I think of anger, I think of fear, I think of guilt and shame, and I think of sadness and grief, and those all come out in various patterns and 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 uh, combinations. And I just try to help people recognize those, uh, ex- allow them to experience those, to express them. And realize that the emotions aren't the danger, are not the danger. Emotions aren't the problem. It's held in emotions. It's repressed emotions. It's unresolved emotions that are not coming out. And of course, Alan talks so much about is that anger mixed with guilt is a pretty potent combination uh, for having your brain uh, uh, alarm you to the fact that there's something you know wrong. So what are some of the interventions that you would typically do to help people along the path of liberating emotions from suppression? Well, you know, if I could, if I could take a step back from that question for a moment, because to me, the emotional liberation part of it is not the first thing that I do because, uh, and, and not that that's wrong to do that first. And I think it's a, it's a great way to go. But as a physician, as an internal medicine doctor, you know, I want to begin at the, at the start of what the symptom is representing physically, structurally, medically. So I'm beginning to educate people about pain and about the neuroscience of pain and about predictive coding and how the brain produces pain. And then I'm taking their symptoms and we're looking at those, investigating those symptoms carefully to see if we can figure out if those symptoms fit into this paradigm of neurocircuit pain, which most of the time they do in chronic pain situations. So we're looking at, you know, neurocircuit pain tends to turn on and off. Well, migraine turn on and off, that makes it obvious. Uh, When the back pain goes away on vacation, that makes it obvious. Uh, When the back pain hurts when you're sitting in one chair, but not another type of chair, that makes it obvious. When the pain is triggered by a food or a light or sound or weather or cold or wind, again, that makes it obvious because those are all characteristics of neural circuit uh, pain syndromes. So I'm doing a lot of that and I've written a lot about that. Um, And then we're taking that knowledge and then we're we're applying it to people and educating them and helping them to first reduce fear of their symptoms begin to move, begin a graded exposure technique. And we're using basically desensitization techniques, which go back to behavioral medicine and and Skinner and and that kind of stuff, which is extremely wonderful and powerful, just like you would help somebody with a snake phobia, you know, in classical classical psychological training, right? And we're using that with pain because when they can separate from the pain, and we're using mindfulness te- techniques as well so that they can, they can begin to lean into the sensation of pain instead of fearing it. Because the vicious cycle is pain leads to fear, leads to more pain. Or pain leads to overfocus on it, or pain leads to frustration with it. So we're helping them see that the pain is not the problem. The pain is their protector. And we're using and and we're using kind of a, an internal family systems model as well, uh, where we're we're looking at the the symptom as a protector, and we're helping people see that it's 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 not there to harm them or betray them, it's there to alert them, 
can be, they can befriend them. They can understand that and they can see what it's trying to tell them or what it's trying to say to them. And they can see that if they can separate from it in a way and relax about it and not be so consumed by it, those neural circuits will begin to turn off. And so not everyone needs deep emotional work to do this and not all. And so, and I think that's the other message that I want to give to psychologists is they can learn to use this, do this evaluation, investigate the pain based on these neural circuit criteria and use simple graded exposure, mindfulness type activities and desensitization once they've confirmed with the client or patient that this is a neural circuit problem and they don't have to fear it. On top of that, then, you know, then I'm, it's after that, that I'm my, in my practice anyway, I'm moving toward dealing with the actual emotions. One thing I'm wondering is, and perhaps this might just be anecdotal, but what percentage of people buy into the model as presented? Uh, in my experience, a number of cl clients can be quite invested in the physical nature of their symptoms, even though there might be strong signs and, and, and indications that it may be more of a psychological origin. It, can, it feels like sometimes it's very much a tough sell. Uh, how does that play out in your experience? Well, you know, I have a unique practice because people are seeking me out for mind-body conditions. So <laughs> I don't have a problem. <laughs> but uh, we're, I'm working with the United Health Group, the biggest insurer, medical insurer in the U.S., uh, on a pilot pain project in Las Vegas with, um, you know, regular folks, working class folks, uh, people who've been paying for a lot of, a long, many years, people on narcotics. And it, it can be a very tough sell, no question about it. Uh, but, the, but the whole paradigm in, the, in our culture, it makes it a tough sell. And the way the doctors are treating people make it a tough sell. So as this paradigm begins to shift, I think it's going to start to be easier. But as of now, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. So I don't, you know, I don't advise people to push it on their patients. I just want them to explore with their patients. You know, if you love your client, if you love your patient, they know you love them and you do anything for them and you care deeply about them, uh, then, you know, maybe they'll listen to you. And if they listen to you, you can begin to ex educate them about the, neuro the new neuroscience of pain and you can explore their symptoms. You know, it's, it's kind of like, I mean, you know, you may not be old enough to remember the detective Columbo, the TV detective, Peter Falk, but um, I do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he was great because he would scratch his head and he would go, hmm, I wonder why that's happening. You know, why, why is the shadow, you know, at three o'clock, why was the shadow there? Maybe it wasn't three o'clock when the murder occurred, you know, whatever. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm doing with my clients. And that's what I urge you guys to do is to sit with them and say, you know, Gee, I wonder why it hurts in that chair, but not that chair. You know, is that really a physical problem? Why did it go away when you were on that boat with your friends? You know, why did it, you know, why is it being triggered by the, this light? You know, light is really not damaging your back or your head, you know, and it's, and then over time you're gathering evidence or you're accumulating evidence and you're just helping people to see. And it, when they get desperate enough that the medical model isn't working, if the medical model works for them, great, do that. But, you know, we're seeing people it's not working for. 
As clinical psychologists, what would be some of the things to look out for when you would actually want to refer your client back to their family physician? Uh, what would be an indication of something perhaps more serious or organic in nature that needs to be explored? Well, you know, most of the time at the, at the, at the, at the start, you know, I mean, their doctor, they should see their doctors, you know, at the beginning, just to make sure there's no tumor, there's no fracture, there's no infection. You know, there's no autoimmune disorder. So those are fine, um, you know, but those are easily ruled out, you know, almost all the time. Uh, but if you're treating somebody and then a new symptom develops, you know, it's nothing wrong with checking that out. You know, if it's bleeding, <laughs> something's wrong. You know? <laughs> I mean, I got a call from one of a social worker I'm working with last week. And she said, you know, um, She's seen a hematologist because her platelet count is low and her white blood count is low. And I'm going, well, that's, you know, that's some, that's a blood problem. <laughs> and she told the, this, this, this patient of hers told the hematologist what she's working with this mind body group. And he's going, oh yeah, they're saying it's all in your head. Well, we're not saying your hematology problems are all in your head. We're just saying your back pain, you know, the, hemat the low platelet count is not causing your back pain. So, you know, it'd, it'd be in, a, in the ideal world, you're going to have well-educated physicians who understand the mind-body connection and can help explain this to people and can work with mental health professionals, you know, collegially. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the people I see, their doctors are kind of working against them. So, but it, it's going to change. I, I, I promise. <laughs> you can't keep a good idea down forever. <laughs> I feel like a couple of the conditions where the medical community and psychological community really interface, but in a really confused way is around chronic fatigue syndrome and uh, fibromyalgia. Yeah. What, what's your thinking around those two particular, as, as for the moment, medically unexplained disorders, or certainly that's how they're framed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good question. Well, the fibromyalgia one is is pretty easy. There is no evidence there's any tissue damage in fibromyalgia. I I have a good friend who's a leading fibromyalgia expert, medical expert in the world. And and every time some new theory comes out, I ask him. He said, No, no, that's not it. That's not it. That's not it. <laughs> and so you know, as of now, we're 100 convinced that when the diagnosis is accurately made. Chronic widespread pain, usually the pain is shifting from place to place, which again puts it in the neural circuit category. Um, and there's no, you've ruled out lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and all the other things that kind of get confused. And fibromyalgia is a mind-body condition. That's easy. Chronic fatigue syndrome is a little trickier because uh, uh, there's been a lot of work done in that, and there's a very vocal and active chronic fatigue uh, patient base, activist base, who are strongly against any psychological uh, explanation for that at all. Uh, in fact, they go so far as to deny that a conversion disorder even exists in anyone, which doesn't make sense to me, but... You know they're 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 very against any kind of psychological mechanism, and um, and there are certain immuno immunologic uh, markers that have been associated with chronic fatigue syndromes. There's a disorder called systemic exertion intolerance disease (SEID), 
which has been delineated by a group, including the National Institute of Health in the U.S. here. So it's got an august body behind it saying that this is. And so they, they say, well, there's chronic fatigue syndrome. And then there's this other thing, this SEID thing, where people have extreme intolerance to exertion. And there's some physiologic markers of that. Uh, oxygen saturation goes down, et cetera. Um, I believe, you know, the patients I've seen, and I, everyone deserves a good analysis. Um, I mean, uh, uh, you know, and I, I haven't studied chronic fatigue syndrome in a, in a randomized controlled fashion using this treatment yet. We'd like to do that. But again, anecdotally, I've seen lots of people who've had severe, I, there's this one guy on my website, if anyone wants to go to my website and read about it, it's called Ryan's Story, and it's uh, unlearnyourpain.com is my website. And uh, it's at, anyway, it's there. And this is a young man who had such severe chronic fatigue. If he walked around the block, he would be in bed for three or four days after that because that amount of walking, that amount of exertion made him completely wiped out for three or four days. He couldn't get out of bed. This is severe chronic fatigue. And he was a young guy. He's around 28. And so he was convinced by all the literature that he could never get better. He knew he would never improve. That was his lot in life. And he accepted that. And one of the things he enjoyed doing was playing video games. So he would play a game called Fortnite. It's like a, you know, shoot him up <laughs> video game, I think. <laughs> anyway, uh, and, then he's, and then one day, you know, years went by, he had pain in his right thumb, and then he got pain in the left thumb, which is another one of our mind-body clues when you get it bilaterally like that, and then his hand, and then his whole arm. And now he has such severe pain, he can't play his video game. So he starts searching online, and he comes up after several months, or I don't know how long, and he comes across our work of looking at, is this, could this pain be a mind-body thing? He says, no, maybe it can. I'll, I'll, I know my fatigue is, is incurable, but let me look at the pain. So he starts looking at the pain, and he starts changing his viewpoint of it. He believes that he's not damaged and he starts moving his thumbs a little, a little more and a little more and it hurts, but he doesn't, it doesn't bother him as much because he thinks he's going to get better. And lo and behold, all of his pain goes away in a few weeks or a month or so. And then he goes, hmm, that's interesting. How did that happen? I wonder if my fatigue could go away too. And he started reading our literature and it says, hey, fatigue can go away too, just like the pain. So he, so he takes three steps with a little less fear, and he takes five steps, and pretty soon he's walking half a block. And his fatigue completely goes away. And he's climbing mountains now. He's perfectly, you know, 100% healthy. And what, what gratitude, you know, your listeners could have? What could be more fulfilling than to help somebody go through that process and understand that it's their brain causing this, this pain and or this fatigue, et cetera. And, you know, they're eternally grateful to you. And, and we need to expand, as I was saying before, we need to expand the purview of psychologists and social workers and mental health professionals into this arena. And there's just millions and millions of people suffering who need our help. 
Uh, needless to say, I completely agree. What do you think are some of the cultural headwinds that maybe might impede that process? So for instance, what are the narratives we might have around pain or symptoms that peop- that you see come in the door uh, that are perhaps helping this mind-body syndrome to, to manifest? I'll give you an example. So for instance, the notion of a bad back. Yeah. You know, I've always found it curious that, you know, when you're sitting down, there's many parts of your body that are under similar degrees of stress to your back, but yet somehow the back is the, is the part where that pain tends to manifest. So, and, and there's very definitely a narrative around that. Yeah. So what, what are the narratives du jour that you see come in the door uh, that inform these manifestations of pain? Yeah. There's a great book by Edward Shorter called From Paralysis to Fatigue. And he's a historian, medical historian at University of Toronto. And he, in his book, details the history of psychosomatic disorders uh, worldwide. And it's just incredibly well-written and, and well-researched uh, book. And he states, for example, that uh, conversion disorder like paralysis, psychogenic paralysis, used to be way more common hundred, couple hundred years ago than it is today. Why is that? Well, it's a culture. It was a cultural phenomenon. It's an anthropological phenomenon that that was how stress was often manifest several hundred years ago. Nowadays, we have neurologic exams and CAT scans and MRIs of the brain. And we can deduce when a paralysis is psychogenic versus uh, structural. And the structure and the psychogenic part has gone away. It was not got totally, but it's way, way less. So psychogenic disorders have culturally shifted. And his book is called From Paralysis to Fatigue, to fatigue or to back pain. Uh, one of my good friends is a physician who grew up in Iraq. Uh, he works here now. And uh, when I asked him what he found interesting about medicine in the U.S. when he came, he said, back pain. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, in Iraq, people don't, either people don't have back pain or they don't come to the doctor for back pain because it is a rare complaint. Back pain is one of the top two uh, reasons to visit a doctor in North America. <laughs> Why is that? It's a cultural phenomenon. It's not a medical phenomenon. And why that is you know, I don't know. Why is there a culture? I mean, we anorexia was big in North America. It didn't occur in Japan until we exported it to Japan through social media, basically, from teenage girls to teenage girls and then to teenage boys, and et cetera. Again, it's a cultural phenomenon. There's this great study in Germany. You might have seen this. We write about it where they looked at the prevalence of back pain in East Germany versus West Germany at the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And they tracked that over time. And the East German back pain was much lower than West German back pain at the beginning. But over time, the East German back pain rose to the level of West German back pain. And the authors concluded that back pain is a communicable disease. Yeah, when you view it through that lens, undeniably so, it, it does really seem like those cultural narratives are, uh, you know, of course, like you mentioned before, our, our brain is looking to construct the world. It, it's lazy. It takes shortcuts. It's going to rely on pre-existing frameworks in order to understand what is going on with it and to make it make sense to the end user, i.e. us, yeah. of, of the body that it's in. Yeah, that's a really good point because that's how the brain works. It takes shortcuts. shortcuts. You know, the story of the guy uh, who was in Britain, 95, I think it was, where he jumped off a scaffolding, his nail, you know, pierced all the way through his work boot. 
coming out the other side and he had tremendous pain. And they rushed him to the hospital and he's screaming and they gave him IV pain medication. They took his boot off. The nail was between his toes. There was zero injury, no injury at all. So his brain took a shortcut and said, oh, nail in the boot. Let's make pain. Yes, that smoke detector principle, right, where the cost of, of getting it wrong is really bad, but the cost of a, cost of a fo- false alarm is relatively cheap, let's say. So exactly. our brain is constantly getting out in front of things and anticipating the worst. And I think it's a big part of any sort of anxiety or pain-related phenomenon that's it's an anticipatory response in, in some ways. I do a lot of work with tinnitus, and in advance to clients going, to say, to like a concert or a loud venue, their tinnitus will get worse in advance in anticipation, almost warning them preemptively, like, hey, you're entering a potentially harmful sound environment. And we're going to just like if there was a tiger in the corner, say, hey, look over there. It's alerting them to the danger preemptively to try and do do something about it. That's a great example. And that is that's exactly what I was talking about. This is part of the investigation that you can do or you are doing, obviously, and, and other people can do with their clients with their physical, because when they see that it's increasing in anticipation, that's proof that the brain is causing it. So you're taking that bit of knowledge, but you're applying it in this way to help the the client or the patient understand exactly what's going on. I had a woman with typing pain and it was bad Monday through Friday, it got worse every day. And she thought her hands were damaged. And I asked her, do you have the pain any other time? And she said, yes, Sunday evening. And so that was the clue that that took the whole case, you know, like Colombo. That was the clue that made the case. And I said, okay, we got it now. Now we know this is not your hands. It's your brain. And she got better because she had that knowledge. And she could apply that knowledge and reduce fear of typing. So, uh, yeah, that's a great... I, I also I also have people and your your uh, your listeners can use this. I also have people frequently imagine the setting. So you could with tinnitus, you could have them imagine going to a concert. What happens right then, right there in your office? Imagine if you have back pain. Imagine bending over. Stand up and imagine bending over. You get the pain. There we have it. That's a diagnostic test. Very simple to do. Uh, so it's really uh, a great way of uh, investigating and, 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 and developing the evidence for the neural circuit uh, condition being the cause as opposed to a structural problem. And again, appreciating the answer here might just be anecdotal, but what's a rough guess of the number of clients who benefit from, let's call it the psychoeducation phase around what's going on versus need to go on to that deeper emotional work? Like, do most people benefit from the psychoeducation phase or is it 50-50? Do you have a, do you have a guess or a, any evidence around, or data around that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it depends on, well, it really depends on the individual, you know, it depends on and the population you're dealing with. Uh, in our in our uh, Boulder University of Colorado Boulder back pain study, we uh, evaluated um, we treated 44 people who also got fMRIs use of uh, back pain. Uh, the average duration of pain was 10 years, and I evaluated all those 40 or well, there were 45 actually that I evaluated. 43 out of the 45 had nothing wrong with their back from my evaluation. Of the 44 we treated, 33 had no back pain in one month. 
And this was just using what we're calling pain reprocessing therapy. We're just using the education, the fear reduction, the mindfulness or somatic tracking and the graded exposure. Just that we had tremendous results with average duration of pain 10 years. Now, this was Boulder, Colorado. It's a highly educated uh, you know, patient population, university, town, and all that stuff. And maybe that wouldn't work. You know, maybe we wouldn't get those results in a different uh, population. And maybe if the population you're working with has much higher level of adverse childhood events, then you would think those people would be more likely to need uh, emotional processing type work like ISTDP. Uh, so... So I can't say, but I think in my, in my practice, I use them interchange. I, I just kind of flow in and out from one to the other. I always start with the diagnosis assessment. I go to the pain reprocessing and the neuroscience education, and I see how that goes. And then as emotional stuff comes up, I just kind of start working in, you know, working in emotional processing little by little and you know, see what see how it goes. As a physician, uh, what's your view of antidepressants in the context of your work with mind-body syndrome? Do you ever feel like they have a place or can they be an impediment? How do you view them in your clinical practice? Uh, I rarely start people on them. Of course, a lot of people are on them already. The data on antidepressants for depression shows that, you know, it's, it's very effective. They like 75% of people on average will respond to an antidepressant in the first six weeks of trial. But the placebo response rate is about 72%. So, uh, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not a huge proponent because I, you know, if we can use the placebo effect, in other words, what we're doing, if we can help people harness the power of their own brain and their own mind to get better, we won't, you know, many, many people would not need uh, that kind of support. So that's number one. I don't think that if for severe, severe anxiety, severe, severe depression, fine. That can certainly be helpful. Hopefully, they won't need to be on it forever. Once people are on medication uh, and they start, and we start doing this work, uh, usually they'll be able to go off medication. But I don't usually recommend just stopping the medication without weaning, obviously. And I don't usually recommend stopping the medication for the most part until people begin to get better or are significantly better, because when you stop the medication. It's, it can happen that your brain will activate the nocebo effect and make your symptoms worse. So I just warn people about that. When people start to stop the medication, I want them to be talking to their brain, reminding themselves that they're okay, that the medication isn't necessary, that they're going to be fine. They can lower the dose and reduce fear about decreasing medication use. And would you have a similar strategy for clients that come in, uh, say, on anti-inflammatories or who are taking Tylenol every day? I'm, I'm, I'm sure you must see folks who are sort of self-medicating quite a bit their uh, symptoms. Do you approach it in the same light? Yes, for certain. Of course, in the States, we're not talking about Tylenol and anti-inflammatory. We're talking about opioids. But I understand, <laughs> <laughs> I understand what you're saying. Uh, yeah, I uh, I don't want people to suffer unduly. Just, you know, Dr. Sarno had this idea: you should throw away your medication. You know, get up, throw away your crutches. You know, like like going to Lourdes. You know, throw away your, <laughs> uh, which can work. You know, and if people are empowered to do that, the more empowered they are, you know, oftentimes they do great. But um, generally, I think a gradual approach makes sense. Dr. Shimir, what's new and exciting in the world of mind-body medicine at the moment? 
we're on the verge of some really uh, cool things uh, looking to the future. Uh, we've, we've, I mentioned the Boulder back pain study. Uh, that's going to be coming out in the next year. We, we presume that'll be published soon. We're excited about that. That has fMRI data as well of the brain. Uh, we published a bit ago our, our fibromyalgia trial using emotional awareness and expression therapy, which is uh, was taken basically from Alan Abbas and ISTDP. That was shown to be more effective than cognitive behavioral therapy in a randomized controlled trial. Um, we are working on this project with United Health Group in Las Vegas, where we're going to have some data coming out of that in the next year, hopefully showing effectiveness of, of this model in an actual real kind of clinical setting. Movies. Uh, there's one called All the Rage about Dr. Sarno uh, that people can look at. You can see it on rumor.com, R U M U R.com, made by Michael Galinsky. A second documentary that just came out this year is called This Might Hurt. It was filmed uh, at the center I work at, uh, made by uh, Kent Bassett and Marianne uh, Cunningham. That's available through their, uh, uh, through their website, uh, thismighthurtfilm.com. Uh, so those are available for streaming. Uh, there's another documentary that will be coming out on the Boulder Back Pain Study. Uh, and so that will be next year sometime, presumably. Uh, we're going to be ramping up training, training for mental health professionals and training for physicians uh, in this whole model. Uh, we're working on a, a mobile app for um for uh, training physicians and how to, and psychologists for that matter, on how to make this diagnosis and do that assessment. And so we're excited about that. That's upcoming. Uh, there's, of course, the uh, Curable app, uh, which is a great um, uh, uh, mobile product app that patients can use, and psychologists and physicians can sign up to be on the Curable Connect. So they can refer patients to the Curable app, which is a mind-body app. I'm a scientific advisor for that. Uh, there's a program in, uh, based on Australia that I'm also working with, uh, Hal Greenham, called freedomfromchronicpain.com. that has an online program that you can get. You can also get individual therapy with to go with that in an online fashion because so many people don't have access to um local uh, mental health professionals who are really uh, schooled in this in this work and a lot of people want to do virtual virtual visits anyway nowadays why leave the house it's too scary out there so uh those are a few things that i think people might want to know about uh, dr schubner thank you so much for joining us today i've learned quite a bit about mind body syndrome and i really enjoyed the uh the conversation thanks so much for coming on and i hope you'll uh, come on again sometime it's a pleasure keep up your good work Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. 
All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.